This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The relationship between China and the United States can, I guess, be summed up as tenuous at best over the last few decades. But with the mantra of bringing jobs back to the U.S., it's going to be very interesting to see what ends up being the relationship between the two countries going forward, especially from the Obama, from the Trump administration. To discuss what might happen here, we are joined in the studio by Penn Law Professor Jacques Delisle, who's also director of the Center for East Asian Studies, and by Minwan Zhao, who is associate professor of management here at the Wharton School. Great to see you both. Happy New Year to you. Thank, Thank you, you Dan. Thank you. Uh, it is interesting because we're talking about two unbelievably large economies, and obviously China making news last uh, last week because of their growth numbers, which were a little bit higher towards the end of the year than the overall numbers for the year. What kind of relationship does China and the United States need to have going forward? Well, I think the world is watching uh, in the sense that uh, we believe uh, actions speak louder than words. And uh, so far, there has been a lot of rhetoric both from both sides. Trump says we're going to buy American, a high American. And China said we're going to do globalization, we'll be the leader in globalization. But on the other hand, um, Trump has all these businessmen in the administration. And, you know, from all practical reasons, we know having complete isolation is not the viable option. And from the China side, you know, they've been cracking down on VPN, uh, they're limiting uh, the capital flows. And so, you know, to what extent both countries are speaking to the choir rather than speaking for the actual action they're going mm-hmm. to take in the next few years? We don't know. I think we're, we're just watching, watching with anxious. Jack? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a real trepidation in China about where Trump is going to go with this. And I think it's been sort of interesting to watch the degree to which Chinese experts and Chinese policymakers have been sort of back on their heels and kind mm-hmm. of a little flat-footed by this. I mean, there initially was a lot of pre-election openness to the idea of Trump winning. I think a lot of that was because of Chinese concerns about what a Hillary Clinton presidency might mean in terms of toughness on human rights, in terms of uh, of uh, perhaps uh, being a little more assertive on some of the security issues. Um, The economic issues, I mean, I think there was some hope that Trump as a businessman, you know, just wanted to strike a deal and that he was putting down markers so that he could have something to bargain with, the whole bargaining chip strategy. I think that that view is fairly prevalent. Recently, it's been, been, I think, much more concerning as he has not let go of the the rhetoric about uh, tariff imposition that is extremely unlikely to fly, but that still is is a signal of a tough line. Uh, And then the the economic nationalism in his inaugural address. So I think what you've seen is a pretty clear signal, and some of this is leaked out as being an official signal to of the Chinese media to hold back, to be quiet, to, as, mm-hmm. as Min Yuan says, to give some time to see what he's actually going to do. Right. Because if you start reacting to the rhetoric, it's, it, it really does escalate very quickly. On the other hand, there's a limited window here. I mean, if he keeps up at this and starts implementing some of these things, then I think China's going to have really no choice but to, to decide how much it accepts and how much it pushes back, and there's going to be a lot of pressure for pushing back. The numbers uh, of growth that uh, came out last week uh, are still in that high 6% range for, for China right now. Uh, obviously, they're looking for any way that they can get that into the 7, 7.5, 8 range again. Obviously, I don't know if that those 10% numbers are, are so far above, you know, if that would ever be seen again. But 
from that government's perspective right now, is do they feel good about 6.8% or 6.7% right now? And they know that they, they feel like they have a plan to be able to build it to a degree over the next couple of years? I think from the official tone, you know, if you can sense the tone in the announcement, uh, China is sending a message that we'll be comfortable with lower growth numbers as long as it's, you know, more solid growth coming from quality rather than quantity. I know this has been, you know, in the talk for a long, long time, but given the corruption, uh, not corruption, the, the pollution yeah. and anti-corruption. Related. Related. Corru- corruption <laughs> would be trouble too. Yeah, it would be related, but yeah. the pollution, and, and you know, people increasingly realize that to get those kind of high numbers of growth, we're basically betting on inputs, you know, yeah. input of um, land, water, uh, all these uh, non-renewable resources in the past 30 years. So um, the numbers are telling us two things. Uh, one, China is slowing down. Second, China has not collapsed yet. And that's like the only conclusions we can draw, whether it's 6.8 or 6.4, or as some analysts said, it's actually 4%. We don't know. But the the official line is that we're getting comfortable with smaller numbers and uh, we'll build on the quality rather than quantity. Yeah, that's right. A few years ago, the then Premier Wen Jiabao said the new normal is going to be in the 7% range. That has ticked down to about 6.5. Chinese official sources did not push back very hard at some of the international assessments that are projecting around 6 five, six, four for the next year. Uh, and uh, although we had this scandal with you know, bad economic data from the first half of the decade out of Liaoning province, which yeah. renewed that whole question of how bad Chinese data is, I think there's a sense that the numbers we're hearing now are not way, way off. I mean, the lowest I've heard is around four, which mm-hmm. is a pretty heavy discount, and I think most think higher than that. So in some sense, the drop may not have been so severe if the numbers are getting more accurate. I think they think they can live with something in the sixes, even the low sixes. The question is, what's sustaining those low sixes? Right. Uh, and yeah. so there's this long-term shift to consumer spending as a basis, a long-term shift, as Minyan says, to more quality-oriented growth, to accepting some of the costs associated with the pollution Mm -hmm. issues and dealing with all that. But recently, we've seen signs to kind of goose the economy. And if you're getting the low sixes, buy things like opening up the taps on real estate and mortgage Mm -hmm. lending, buy uh, the PBOC cutting the rate, the People's Bank, Central Bank, cutting the rate to to stimulate lending, that raises all those debt concerns, which have been a recurring issue Mm -hmm. in the Chinese economy. So if you're getting six the right way, the good way, that's not so bad. At six six four. If you're getting four while stimulating uh, in ways that are going to come back to bite you, yeah. that's very bad news. And of course, the Trump factor. You know, if you get a trade war going, if you get investment uh, drying up a bit because of the concerns about capital controls, concerns about how hospitable or hostile the environment's going to be, then it gets ugly for everybody. Well, how much stimulation is there right now coming to the Chinese economy at this point? A lot. Yeah. Just look at the balance sheet of the banks. Uh, they're pumping a lot of money into the economy and right. just follow up with the, the now so quality uh, growth. The coal mines are being opened. The steel mills are being opened, yeah. right? Um, despite the lack of efficiency many of those operations have. So, yeah, the concern is that the inefficient lending by the state banks are propping up the numbers. Uh, that's that's a real concern. Uh, what was your reaction to uh, what was said in Davos last week? With uh, with President Xi. Well, as I said, you know, we, we would love to for that to be uh, true. And China obviously benefited a lot from global trade. So sure. uh, it's not surprising that China want to continue uh, free trade with most economies. And there's also, you know, one message it's sending is that this is not only a China issue. 
Right. right? It's a global issue. So, you know, when you think about U.S. stop uh, stopping to buy from China, China's running trade deficit with all the nearby countries because mm-hmm. China is the final assembly line, right? China's running trade deficit with Japan, with Korea, with Taiwan, with all these places. Yeah. Um, and if U.S. start to do the nationalist thing and buy American – the impact is global, and to what extent those countries will be aligning with China instead of the U.S. Right. to propping up the economy. Uh, we already see that in the pressure uh, Korea got right for the the third uh, military uh, shield, and I don't know what's the uh, the full name for it. Um, the moment China stop buying from Korea, Korea feels the pressure, and if U.S. stop buy from China, that's a message China can send to uh, to the U.S. too. You know, right. it's it's not a bilateral relationship. You're you're hurting potential allies and uh, and friends. Uh, it may have in the region. John? Yeah, well, I, I'd agree with that. And of course, the, the, the takeaway phrase from Xi Jinping's uh, Davos speech was economic globalization. Right? Clearly economic. I mean, we, we've, we've touched upon right. a little bit here already yeah. that he doesn't want the openness to political ideas. And we could get into a long discussion about whether you can have economic openness mm-hmm. with political closeness. But even on the economic side, look, there's plenty of economic nationalism in Xi's China. Uh, we've seen a turn back to supporting state-owned enterprises. We've seen the yeah. use of economic tools uh, to address economic crises in ways that cut against currency liberalization and capital flow liberalization and all that sort of stuff. And we've certainly seen, as Minyan was just saying, China use economic leverage to political ends. We've, we've seen sure, it against yeah. Taiwan because of the phone call. We've seen it against Korea because of the, the missile defense and things like that. So that's all in there. But there is a piece of economic nationalism that Trump has enunciated that's not part of the Chinese mix, and that is that buy local, hire local. China yeah. do, is committed to globalization in the form of being part of these complex global supply chains. Mm-hmm. And one of the worries among Chinese watching Trump is, does Trump really get that? Does he get that it's not Chinese exports and U.S. imports? Rather, it's this (laughs) complex chain where the U.S. economy depends on exporting U.S. industries, where U.S. companies import Chinese inputs uh, as part of what they're producing. And if you disrupt that, I mean, that's that's a big ecosystem. And a large um, proportion of the export from China to the U.S. are run by American operations, right? right? Right. To what extent are they going to voice their voice if the the tariff becomes reality? Well, I, I don't know if you saw the story from earlier today. I'd be speaking of Taiwan. I'd be interested to get your opinion on on Foxconn. Apparently, you know, saying that they are going to build a big plant here in the United States. They're talking thirty to fifty thousand jobs. Obviously, you know, that's part of a PR move. But you know, this was all you know kind of came about because of that that oops moment uh, that that happened a few weeks ago in terms of uh, the investment amount uh, coming from uh, into the United States going forward. So. I mean, if Foxconn is deciding that they are going to build a big plant to build displays here in the U.S., what kind of reaction does that have over in Asia? I mean, Foxconn's obviously in an incredibly complicated position, right? Sure, a giant yeah. Taiwanese company uh, that's been present on China. So they're looking at it, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not privy to Foxconn's internal decision-making, obviously, but if you're looking at where their interests lie, they've got to be worried about whether they might get caught in some fallout by deteriorating cross-strait relations. Yeah. I mean, generally, the, 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 the Beijing government's approach to these things has been to try to co-opt Taiwanese industry mm-hmm. that's come across the strait. But if things get really bad, they're going to get caught in some of the fallout. So they're looking at that. They're looking at possible protectionism in the U.S. and want to jump over that barrier so at least some of the value added is, mm-hmm. is inside uh, the U.S. and not facing that. And they're facing a lowering, a lowering of the attractiveness of manufacturing in China because of rising costs. I mean, China still is an incredible 
incredibly efficient manufacturing place in many ways, but the costs have gone up, and the things that are not high-end, the traditional assembly stuff that China's done, some of that's migrating anyway. Yeah. And going to elsewhere in Asia, yeah. and especially if it's seen as a bilateral U.S.-China trade war, then it just accelerates a process that was occurring naturally anyway. Yeah. I totally agree. I think many, if you look at manufacturing in the past five years, uh, manufacturing is coming back to the U.S., especially after the financial crisis. The states are bidding for enterprises to to come and create manufacturing jobs. The state rebate is huge. So uh, there are two things to look at it. One, the U.S. is becoming more competitive with low energy cost and lower uh, land cost and so on and so forth. And the second, the politics are into it in the sense that the businesses are moving the factories anyway, but they would like to make it a big political deal. Um, I would say uh, the the auto companies are doing the same thing. They would do certain things anyway, but, you know, they are making a political point with that. Um, At the end, again, you know, it's still, it's a case-by-case analysis, but I've seen so many cases in which uh, U.S. does not always benefit by those so-called created jobs because every job would cost the state, like, $100,000 $100,000 a year. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the case we analyzed in the past few I years. I noticed another piece of this is that there's a concern, of course, that shipping costs for some goods may start to yeah. go up if the OPEC deal holds together and you see that kind of thing. You know, driving up shipping costs, the urge to manufacture locally becomes more appealing. We're joined in studio by uh, Jacques Delisle, uh, Penn Law Professor, uh, Minwan Zhao, uh, Assistant Professor of Management here at the Wharton School. We're talking about the relationship between uh, President-elect Trump, uh, President Trump, I should say now. Sorry, I guess still get stuck in that from last week. Uh, and uh, and the country of China. I guess the other uh, question to ask is, with all of, as you kind of alluded to before, the rhetoric that was out there during the election— mm-hmm. What's the reaction in general of China towards Donald Trump right now? Well, I think there was still hope, as Jack mentioned, uh, the the idea that Trump is a businessman right. gives most Chinese a lot of hope that he will be practical uh, after the election. I think they're still observing uh, the the Chinese social media has been circulating the list of cabinet members and you know talking about impossibility of a trade war if you're looking at all these business people um, no matter how um, how tough their position has been towards China their businessmen at all in, in anyone who understand business does not believe in um, isolated nationalist economies uh, I would say that's still the overall tone. Uh, the country was ready. The government side, they're, they're ready. The policymakers are observing with a lot of uh, anxiety. But uh, I don't think any action will be taken until we see real uh, real moves made by the uh, this administration. Jacques? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the Chinese policy-making class and, and, and policy-advising class has gotten much more sophisticated over the last few decades in looking at American politics. So yeah. they understand that one of our rituals, not every four years, but you know, a fair number of presidential cycles, is for candidates, particularly the candidates of the out-of-power party, to bash China and particularly to bash China on economic yeah. issues. So right. that, that now gets a heavy discount rate. And I think that's and, the, and a currency issues too every yeah. once in a while. Right. right. China, how many times was China going to be labeled a currency manipulator yeah. on day one? Yeah. And of course, yeah. there's, less, there's less empirical foundation for that now than there 
there was four, eight, 12 years ago. I mean, the, 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 the idea that China is depressing its currency is just no, right. longer, uh, no longer plausible the way it once was. But I, I do think, I, although I agree with what Minyan is saying, I do detect this sort of rising concern in China. I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a keep your powder dry. That right. is, don't right. rush into this until we actually have evidence yeah. that he's going to do things. But I think there is more hedging going on. There is more right. playing out, gaming out, what do we do if? Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's an issue. And I think the problem is once you start gaming those scenarios, those tools are in the toolkit, and it may be a, a more of a hair trigger to get them, get, the, get them deployed. Right. I think President Xi's Davos talk was one of those, you know, hedging strategies. And one road one belt, you know, China has been moving along with those strategies, mm-hmm. forming alliance with potential allies of the U.S. in the region. Um, I would say the, the collapse now it's official, the collapse of TPP yeah. is also playing a big role there. And China is taking advantage of that to show what, uh, you know, how China is willing to step in and be the good trade partners. Well, that, that was one of the things I wanted to bring up is, is that do, does China have the opportunity here to, to even take a larger step forward on the global spectrum mm-hmm. on a variety of different fronts uh, because of some of the rhetoric that, that has come from from Donald Trump and, and and the administration on climate change. Obviously, you know, China was was part of the Paris Accord, mm-hmm. and they obviously have a commitment to a degree uh, of trying to improve things. Right. Well, you know, if you've got one big entity here in the United States not necessarily believing it, at least in the White House, but you have another country, I mean, they have an opportunity to really kind of take a few steps forward here. Right. In climate change and in trade. Right. So I yeah. would not be surprised if the European countries are now in a more listening you know, position to what China has to say on, on trade, because if the rhetoric from Trump comes true uh, with, uh, you know, on NATO and on all these things, um, they have to be ready, you know, where to trade, and especially with the collapse of the TTIP uh, that was... That was supposed to be a big move to yeah. uh, leave China behind. Yeah, I, mean, I think you know, China has stepped into a leadership role largely because the U.S. is stepping back. I mean, the, yeah. at the very best, what you've got is uncertainty about the U.S. position, and we've got pretty strong signals of retrenchment uh, in the sense of the U.S. being a leader in liberalization of trade and investment, in the sense of the U.S. being a partner uh, in the climate change undertakings, and I would say in the sense of the U.S. being the underwriter of global security as we've known it in the post-World War II era, right? So if you've got the U.S. stepping out of that, China doesn't even have to change very much right. to suddenly look like it's now the central player and the cooperative player. Uh, you know, it's not that they've moved, it's that we've moved. And that creates a great deal of uncertainty. So everybody starts hedging and worrying. If you think the U.S. is going to be anti-trade, you turn more to China, which for all the flaws in terms of liberal trade values, looks a lot better than a protectionist U.S. Uh, if you're a neighbor of China worried about China's military strength and the U.S. is suddenly looking a lot iffier in terms of backing it, all the signals there too have been mixed, yeah, yeah. Uh, you start hedging on that front. And on climate change, I mean, you're seeing it happen within the U.S., California and other states saying they're going to step up. <laughs> up to the plate. But certainly, um, you know, China is now the, the, by far the biggest uh, emitter of climate change uh, pollution, you know, greenhouse gases and so on, that actually says it's going to be cooperative. But that's only fair because after all, they created the hoax, didn't they? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then you also have something we've talked to you about is just the demographic of the people in China right now, and that you have so many more that are on the upper age bracket you know, that are not going to be a, a factor in the economy 20, 30 years down the road uh, compared to the younger generation. So you need to build that up as well as part of this buildup of the country in general. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, there's a demographic change here. And that's that's probably the most daunting challenge the Chinese economy faces in many ways is that, you know, they've, they've been living off the, uh, the demographic sweet spot, right? That yeah. is what you had is relatively few old people because life expectancies have been relatively short and all that. And you had pretty high population growth uh, in, in the sort of relatively early decades of, of the People's Republic of the post-war era. And then you had this highly restrictive population policy, which drove birth yeah. rates down to 1.2 or so per, per woman. Uh, and so you had this big bulge of people in the working age population, which was great when you were industrializing, you do labor intensive industries, but they got to figure out how to adjust to that. Um, right. and, they're, and they are getting gray before they get rich in a way that Japan sure. and Europe yeah. did not. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree the uh, the demographic, especially the um, burden of taking care of the elderly and uh, and the social security. Some already said that the pension has been bankrupt before it even got started. Um, that aside, I would have to say uh, the demographic change is consistent with the transition China is trying to make economically. Right. In the sense that if you want to transition to highly value-added, um, more service-oriented industries, uh, which would need highly educated, but not as many people uh, as possible, um, there, there is less employment burden, less of, I would say, the time bomb people were talking about, right? right? So China has to sustain high growth for a long time because the moment the uh, growth slows down, you're not going to hire all these migrant workers from the countryside, the redundant uh, labor forces, and that's going to create social uncertainty and uh, you know social unrest. That's the thing the administration ha- had been very worried about. Um, with slowing down of the the birth rate, uh, well, I would say the birth rate actually picked up last year. Okay. But there's not as much uh, fear that, you know, the unemployment, the mass um, unemployment is going to create a social uh, unrest. First of all, the one child, they can sustain unemployment for a little longer with the support of sure. both parents yeah. and four grandparents. Yeah. And second of all, they tend to be highly educated and therefore they're not only looking for factory jobs. You know, they have more options to go around. Right. So you switch to, uh, so you see all this investment in education, which which mm-hmm. feeds into those more human capital intensive industries. Sure, yeah. You're also seeing a, slift, a shift towards services, which people can work in that industry longer. Um, so there are a lot of, and, and now they've uh, eliminated the one so-called one child family policy. Yeah. It's never quite that strict mm-hmm. uh, in many places. Uh, to try to goose the birth rate back up again. And, I th- and so, you know, they're, they're moving in, on, in both directions, trying to increase the supply of people above mm-hmm. the downward trend that had been following yeah. and trying to reduce the labor intensity of the economy so right. you can get more out of it. Now, the redu- eliminating the one-child family policy has really not had the demographic payoffs people hope. It turns out that once you urbanize and once uh, you realize that raising a kid is god-awful expensive <laughs> in a Chinese yes. city That's right. and, and, and you kind of like your quiet little lifestyle, not everybody's rushing to have two, three, or four right. kids. Right. But the number I saw is that the proportion of newborns as a second child has gone up significantly yep. last year. So the overall birth rate as any country that experienced economic growth is coming yep. down. But the second child is, um, you know, is propping up the, uh, the, the birth rate a little bit. So then with, with, uh, with President Trump making the statements he did today about the TPP, and obviously we knew for a while that he was not going to be supportive of, of that mm-hmm. element, what does the framework of a of a trade deal look like in your mind what what are the what are the important components that that need to be put into something like this well i think for now and china's taken advantage of the rcep the regional comprehensive economic partnership which was, was the 
if you will, the Chinese rival to the TPP. I mean, you know, China denied it was a rival. Mm -hmm. The U.S. cast it very much as a rival. I think it was probably somewhere in between. Yeah. But that becomes really the big mega regional trade deal that's <clears throat> on the table, right? The right. WTO is now still a highly effective dispute resolution mechanism in many ways, sure. but it's not at the forefront of trade liberalization or, more importantly, economic globalization, which now has a lot more to do with investment and, and things like that, uh, not, not trade narrowly defined. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to see building on that. And it's a lower quality agreement in many ways. It's not as radically liberalizing. It's much more sort of pasted together the way Southeast Asian trade agreements have been. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see that kind of incremental movement. Um, and the question is, what, if anything, will step in in Western Europe and North America uh, or the Americas in general uh, for the U.S. stepping out of this? Because yeah. yeah, there's still going to be momentum in Asia uh, for, for all the obvious reasons of complementarity. And China's yeah. been pushing it and other countries have too. The real question is, what are we going to do? And right now, I don't think we're going to do much. I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're talking about taking down, not taking up our participation. And you also see smaller countries in Asia looking at each other and try to huddle together right. in case, you know, China and the U.S. fall out of uh, all the competitions, um, the, the negotiations. So uh, ASEAN has been very close uh, with each other, with increasing uh, uh, openness towards each other. Um, you know, I saw the news the the Japanese emperor is going to visit Vietnam. That's big in the sense that, you know, Vietnam's like, okay, now there's no TPP, which they had high hope for. Yeah. Should we ally more with Japan with you know, other options, right? So um, I would see more intensified trade negotiations among Asian countries uh, outside of China and the U.S. too. Um, obviously, the exit of TPP gives China a lot of room for negotiation. And there are lingering costs to the U.S. having bailed on these trade agreements. It's mm -hmm. not just that, that we look in some sense unreliable and you know, if we say we're interested again, will that be taken seriously? The way the TPP unfolded uh, there were leaders in other countries, governments in other countries that took hits to get TPP through their own domestic system. Trade liberalization agreements always have losers domestically. Right. They exact political costs from the leaders who put them through. And Japan and others, yeah. those leaders took hits for that. And then mm -hmm. essentially the U.S. left them twisting in the wind. Great to have you both here. Good seeing you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.